You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another installment of Like Flint Radio for another Flint Flake show. Yeah, and that's oh. your host, Cliff Garner. <laughs> yeah, Flake One, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, did you that just fall asleep man. there? No, I just didn't expect that. That 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 felt, that felt like the intro to Johnny's show. <laughs> <laughs> there, there we go. Wow. That's better. That's more. Yeah. That's more okay, if I wasn't awake, I yeah. am now. <laughs> All right, so um, let's uh, let's let's do a quick uh, round of the weather since we're all uh, well, th- we're in three different locations. Cliff, you got snow, haven't yes. you? Yes, it's cold, and, and yeah, we we've been having snow for the last couple of days, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's been, it's been cold for a little while. Uh, I've seen colder weather here already than than I have in six years in, in uh, Istanbul. It's uh, yeah, it's oh. it's colder here. Uh, by a long ways. Uh, I think uh, we've had it down to the 20s Fahrenheit a couple times now, and that's uh, that's over 10 degrees. Uh, so that that would be like five degrees. Your you know your uh, centigrade five oh. five below. So it's yeah. it's it's been cold. It's cold. Uh, yeah, it's cold. Uh, it, it gets a lot colder, uh, mind you, but it's it's cold, and I've been uh, really feeling it because I haven't felt this cold in. Uh, several years. Well, welcome, welcome home back to Illinois, to yeah. yeah, welcome back to Springfield. Yeah, welcome back to Springfield. Well, well, you know, we've always said if you don't like the weather today, just wait; it'll change. <laughs> uh, and, and it does. Too. It just, it just. Well, we're on the we're on the Great Plain, and uh, the uh, the highs and lows change very regularly here, and uh, very quickly, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so the wind direction will change, no problem. It'll it'll blow something else in. Then it, yeah. there's nothing to stop it. There's no there's no uh, uh, mountains or anything to stop it. So it just blows right through. Well, um, kind, kind of about, like that um, in Turkey though on on the plateau, but uh, where I was at, no. Yeah, I was going to say let's uh, let's throw it to one of our Cape Tonians, uh, Cruzy. What's the uh, weather like by you? Um, it's actually quite fine now, but it's been very wet lately. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it's actually quite nice weather today by the looks of it. Um, it seems to be picking up a bit. Um, so yeah, I think we've we've been having the best weather out of all all of us here. Yeah, yeah, uh, we can't complain. Just for a uh, bit of difference, because you're actually both in Cape Town, but not mm-hmm. in the same uh, area. Well, we'll Audi, <laughs> no, sorry, Andy, Andy, um, <laughs> what's the weather like in the city there? Well, there is cloud over the mountain as we speak. <laughs> can't believe mm-hmm. I'm doing a weather forecast. No, um, no, we need this weather forecast. <laughs> in, ca- in case she- someone's flying into ca- Cape Town a week ago after the show goes up, you see. <laughs> she gets she gets the weather before I get it. Uh, it always the rain always comes from her side, so we get the second hand rain. <laughs> right. Yeah. All the stuff that they didn't want to take. <laughs> I suppose it is worth uh, mentioning that it is like, I don't know, close to midnight where Cliff is, and it's 7 o'clock in the morning for Cruzy and I, and what mm-hmm. time is it there by you, Yep, it's just gone three after 3 in the afternoon. I'm coming to you live 
uh, atop Zambia Ridge. Uh, we had to evacuate the um, Bush Hut studio because it was too hot for the equipment. And um, we're up on top of Zambia Ridge overlooking the valleys and the townships and the farms, uh, sitting in the air conditioning here. And it's a bit of a cattle property. We've got cattle right up to the back door here. You do have to be careful uh, if you wander around around feeding time, especially early in the morning for the kangaroos because um, they will attack you here. Um, the guy that owns this place, uh, uh, mine host, um, was attacked uh, recently. He um, went down to the bottom of the drive. Now, you know, um, things are always bigger in Australia, so like his driveways are, let's just say, I don't know, probably the, the breadth of Illinois – uh, uh, long and um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I, I actually. How long did you think in... you were going to get away with this whole story, G? <laughs> because I was just wondering how long you could carry on with that one. Okay, let's just say it. it's very hot, very hot here in Australia, and um, and it's affecting uh, honestly, your brain. And it is affecting me. Honestly, it was yeah. 38 degrees yesterday, um, and I think it approached 40. And um, we, we did have Obama. Putin and our Prime Minister Tony Abbott in <laughs> Brisbane yesterday, all together in Brisbane for the G20, and it and and the reason it's heating up, uh, the reason it's heating up is because there is a Russian fleet just off uh, Brisbane. Um, they've sent a couple of uh, it's four warships that uh, have approached approached. Uh, uh, Brisbane, so things are heating up in Brisbane in more ways than one, and uh, we're just hoping that they're um, they're not nuclear uh, armed or powered because things could get a whole lot hotter. Um, back to you, Andy. <laughs> well, I see. Um, I see Frank, um, our friend Frank, posted something in our Facebook group with a picture of Putin hugging some drop bears, and I thought, he well, what? that does actually show just how strong he is, really, because you've always told us that drop bears were incredibly dangerous, G. Well, you have to be careful if you're a new visitor to Australia, especially Americans are quite susceptible um, to the drop bears, but there is a great photo. You could research it. It's our friend Vlad and our Prime Minister Tony Abbott each holding a drop bear, and um, <laughs> Vlad, Vlad isn't even flinching. I mean, he is uh, like the <laughs> Russian man of steel. I mean... Uh, but that's an amazing photo, and um, uh, Frank Johnson um, beat me to posting it because I was going to get up and post it in Facebook today, but he'd already posted that one. But, no, it really is hot weather-wise, and um, it really is hot politically. Vlad has faced some heat over the Ukrainian <laughs> incident, so they all had a bit of a, a discussion with him here at G20 in Brisbane. Um, so far, as far as I'm aware, there's been very little uh, action like they saw in Toronto. There have been some exclusions. Uh, there have been some protests, but they've all been organised. And look, the people are there actually to see the motorcades coming into Brisbane because Vlad bought his own motorcade and his own, uh, I think he uses Mercedes limos. And Obama has uh, a couple of his beast limos that arrived. And lots of the people just wanted to turn out to see the, the vehicle convoys. That's really what they were talking about on TV. Now, I'm not sure if that's a distraction, so we don't really want to know what's going on behind the scenes at G20. But um, I'm being fair dinkum there. They interviewed a few people and they said, oh, no, I'm just here to see the car convoys. So that's a quick update on the G20. <laughs> I don't think any of them will beat Mr. Mugabe's convoys because he has at least 20 cars in any given convoy. In 25 Zimbabwe. bicycles. <laughs> 25 
25 bicycles. <laughs> so, yeah, that is truly a convoy to, to be seen. Look, I believe it with Uncle Bob, but um, <laughs> I, look, I forgot to mention <clears throat> my favourite arrival so far uh, because they show all the arrivals on TV, you know, of the 20 world leaders of the G20. My favourite so far, and, and I'm not kidding, is uh, President Zuma of South Africa. He gets off the plane. <laughs> No, seriously, seriously, he's the best. <laughs> he arrives, he, he walks down off his jet, he's uh, got a limousine waiting, he's greeted by our Prime Minister, obviously, he walks to his limo, he turns to the media and he says, see you, gets in his limo and drives away. I mean, Sweet. that is just so good, I love the guy, he's down to earth, uh, there's no pomp and ceremony, it's just, you know, see ya, basically in Aussie, you know, see ya, and gets in his limo and drives away. So anyway, enough of that. Let's go to, um, let's go back to Cliff and um, maybe get an update on the political situ situation there. Uh, things over here, we, we just had a, an election and they want to call it what, a referendum on Obama. Well, Obama has uh, failed miserably. The Democrats didn't want him showing up to campaign for them because he was poisoned. And now they, they're trying to protect that Obamacare bill that maybe the Republicans might uh, rescind. I doubt if they will, but it, you got a lot of the Democrats just going nuts about, oh, oh you, you, you oppose the, this bill and you really don't care for people. It's like, wait a minute. This, this isn't a health care bill. It's, it, it, it was always an insurance bill. And that's really what it is, and it's not going to change anything. So what they want is to put everybody into, into uh, an insurance policy, and uh, they're they're going to penalize you if you don't if you don't get in it. So it, is it a tax? Well, we didn't call it that, but yeah, it is. You know, that's how they got away with putting it before the Supreme Court. So the people aren't real happy with the way things have been, and and they're voting in the Republicans again, which. It's kind of like switching one, you know, set of dirty bath water for another, you know, as far as it goes. But uh, that's what they're doing. They're dipping back into the dirty Republican pool, and, uh, and they're going to wash in it. So that's what we got, and, uh, and that's what I've seen. And I, I voted, you know, I held my nose and voted, and uh, hopefully things will get better. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to tell you, Cliff. Um, oh, sorry, mate, but I, I wanted to tell you just a couple of comments on what you're talking about there. The first one is uh, I'm glad you went out and voted. I saw the, the turnout was very low. That's oh, yeah. not possible here in Australia because we have compulsory voting. I think I've told all of you guys before that um, if you don't vote here, what they do is they round everyone up who doesn't vote and they take you out the back behind the dunny and they shoot your feet off. So uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's quite extreme. Yes. You know what? Well, that's why I ended up on crutches the first time. I tried to, I went to vote and um, I got there and it was locked out. I was about five minutes late, so I ended up on crutches. But um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say, uh, listen, I don't know. Hey, listen, just quickly, what's your opinion on compulsory voting? Can I get a one, two, three? Can I start with you, Andy? Do you think compulsory voting's good, yes or no? No. Cruzy? Uh, I would say no. Cliff? Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I, I, don't, I don't think forcing people to vote does anything good. What happens here, the argument is that I, I think we're the only ones who are forced to vote, and I'm, and I'm being genuine here, you do get a fine if you don't vote. It is compulsory. But I think what their aim is is to have a, uh, make people be involved in their democracy, and I think that's the aim. Um, but I, for mm -hmm. one, would prefer to have the choice whether I vote or not. 
The other thing I wanted to say, going back to what you're talking about, Obama being on the nose there in the States, Cliff, I wanted to tell everybody that yeah. he is very, very popular here. They absolutely love him. <laughs> the media love him. The people love him. People turned out in droves. I was serious before, just yeah. a glimpse of Obama, uh, just to see his car, you know, arriving. He's super po- uh Super pooper? <laughs> <laughs> super, super, pop, yeah, super popular. Some would say. <laughs> yeah. Andy, Andy, you're going to have to be very, very judicious with your. She's laughing already. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> GK is going to come out with Obama. Super <laughs> what if we start a whole new political term? In I, six I like months it. time, in six months' time, everybody on CNN is using that word. You might become famous. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what we can do with that. Let's go to our first flake. It is a flake show. Let's go to our first flake. Let's go to our first flake. And then we come back because I, I do have some political questions for Cruzy because it is his favorite oh, fantastic. topic. What, what's uh, our first flake today, Andy? Because I know that you're going to edit this. What's our first flake? I have no idea, but no doubt it will be crispy. Crispy? Okay. So let's go with uh, Cruzy's because Cruzy's is very tasty. Oh, Lord. It's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the Cause I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. That is our very topical intro song as usual, and I want to welcome you guys to a very wet and windy Cape Town. You know, they say Cape Town is like a baby. It's wet or it's windy, and sometimes it's both. Can you guys believe that the year is almost gone already? It's, uh, you know, it feels like just the other day it was Christmas, and now it's almost Christmas again. Um, yep, uh, time flies when you're having fun, I suppose. Or like Kermit the Frog would say, time's fun when you're having flies. So what we're going to talk about today, you know, there's this new sickness in the church. Well, I suppose it's not that new. This gospel of self-love, this narcissistic gospel that's uh, infiltrating and infecting many areas of our church lately, you know, with the Joel Osteens, um, you know, guys like that. And we're going to have a look at, at that gospel today and what they're preaching and how they're preaching it. I want to start off today by reading some scripture passages. The reason why I chose these specific scriptures will become clear as we go along today. I just want to start at 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with their sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Jannes and Jamborees opposed Moses, also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Then we're going to go over to 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 to 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit their own desires. They will gather around them great, a great number of teachers to say what the itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Then our last passage before we start, James 4 verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now these uh, seeker-driven churches and these self-loving churches, they seem to mix up some biblical rules. They seem to mix up their exegesis with their eisegesis. Now what is exegesis and what is eisegesis? I'm glad you asked. Eis means into and ex means out or out of. Now if you eisegete a passage, you would be reading into it what you want the passage to say. If you exegete a passage, you would read what the passage is actually saying. Now, um, just to give you an example of this, there is the famous verse in the book of Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, this passage but, sorry, this passage has been used as encouragement to countless individuals. The he that the passage refers to is actually Israel. It is not us. We cannot read ourselves into this passage. The preceding verse makes it clear that the verse is referring to Israel. Now, some of these guys take uh, this eisegesis a little bit further. They practice something called narcissistic eisegesis. That's where they read themselves into Scripture. Now, that's forcing the Bible to mean something you already want it to mean by superimposing yourself into the meaning of the passage. This narcissistic gospel has a few very famous leaders. I guess uh, Joel Osteen would be one of the big ones, but let's listen to what his wife Victoria had to say a while ago. doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy that's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning so I want you to know this morning just do good for your own self do good because God wants you to be happy when you come to church when you worship him you're not doing it for God really you're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy amen let's open our heart to him today father now let's refute that whole way of thinking by using the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Not for your glory, not for yourself, but for the glory of God. And while we're at it, let us just remind ourselves of 2 Timothy 3 verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves. Uh, many of you would know uh, Steve Camp, the singer and songwriter and pastor of the Cross Church in Palm City, Florida. 
Um, now, this is what he had to say about this. She honestly believes that worship is about our fulfillment rather than his glory. Victoria's view of God is far too human. She honestly believes in her original comment that somehow God is happy when we are happy. She forgets that the defining mark and characteristic of our Lord is not happiness, but holiness. Camp stated that Osteen's comment fall in line with a philosophy that she and her husband espouse, that you seek your best life now and to become a better you. Quote Steve Camp again, Victoria's view of our God simply is reflective of her own worldview of what Christianity should be about, becoming a better you, prospering yourself, and being happy if you are truly following Jesus. But our happiness has little or nothing to do with the Christian life. Pragmatic culture today has tried to redefine worship as something that we get out of it, but it's not, Camp explained. We don't worship God so that you'll become a better you. We don't worship God so that you'll have a better job, or a bank account, or a better attitude. We worship God simply because He is worthy of worship. That is the only reason we worship Him. If we participate for the pragmatic benefit to say, just worship because look how much better you're going to feel, that is minimizing the worth of our holy God and making self the benefactor of worship, when worship is simply the glorifying of God entirely. Camp pointed out Romans 12 verse 1 in reminding Christians that worship is not just a song that is sung, but how we live every moment of our lives. And as followers of Christ, we are to take up our cross and die to self daily. True worship is not what happens on Sunday. True worship is seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that we live on the altar of before God in presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And that is what is pleasing to him. Now that is very well said by Steve Camp. Well done, mate. Now, Victoria Osteen shows a total focus on self instead of God. Now, does her husband do the same? Let's hear what this church service starts like. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. A sinner before a holy and righteous God. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. No, you probably won't. I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. So we see the same me focus instead of God focus there. Now there's another famous pastor that practices this narcissus and this gospel of self. His name is Stephen Furtick. I don't know how many of you are aware of what happened at the Code Orange revival that he hosted at his church, Elevation Church. Now, he um, invited a few guys like Craig Grushel, uh, Jenterson Franklin, Ed Young Jr., T.D. Jakes, Perry Noble, James McDonald, and Christine Kane. Now, that's quite a strange uh, lady, Christine Kane. She was the one that famously read the scripture revelation 16 verse 3 and i saw three unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon 
and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. Now she took this verse about the frogs, and her immediate preaching that she did on that was, what are your frogs in life? What is standing in your way? Now that is narcissistic eisegesis. She's reading herself into scripture, and then she's using it as a picture of what is standing in your way, what is your frogs in life. That is not the way to read scripture. So at this conference, Stephen Furtick was the last speaker that was going to speak. And the first speaker was going to be Matt Chandler. Now Stephen Furtick's sermon dealt with David and Goliath and your Goliath in life is your problems. So he's practicing eisegesis there, imposing himself into scripture instead of exegesis to actually just read what the scripture says. It's a story about a real person called David and he struggles with a real person called Goliath and our God intervened on his behalf. Now remember that Stephen Furtick was going to be the 12th speaker at this conference. Quite interestingly, and I think it's maybe some providence from above, Matt Chandler, Matt Chandler, the speaker that spoke first, dealt with his exact same passage, and we're going to listen to what he had to say about it. He had a total different view on how to read the scripture. It's almost as if he preempted what Stephen Furtick would preach, that the scripture was all about us and not about God. And he was teaching that the whole scripture, and in fact all of scripture, is not about us, but it's all about God. And we can listen to a few clips of what he said. There's something underneath even all of that that if we'll grab onto tonight, I promise you, you'll get set free from you. And that's the best news in the universe. All right. So and the misconception is that ultimately God is all about us and 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 he's about me and the whole thing exists because of me. And so God was lonely in the beginning. And so what he did is he created me for fellowship because who wouldn't want to create a bunch of incompetent, non-loving, adulterous, idolatrous disobedient children to call their own. And nobody's going to say it that way, but that's what we're saying. So what's God doing? God's working me. That, that's what God's doing. So, so God looks at all his massive creation and goes, these people are legit. He is in awe of our greatness. And, and listen, there's some people that can play this game with the Bible. Because here, here's what I'll tell you. We, we can go, I can show you where God loves you. I mean, I can take you and show you where God has blessed you and longs to bless you. And I can take you to places in the scripture that show just this passion about you that God has. But my case is that if you look at those texts closely, there's an underlying motive in his love for you. So I want to give you yes and amen. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus is for you. Yes, Jesus is um, providing for you. There's provision for you in the cross. There's love for you in those things. But ultimately, God's motivation in all of that isn't so you and him can be boys. Now, unlike Fertig, Matt Chandler at this point used Psalm 23 as an illustration that the Bible ultimately is not about you or me. It's about God and his glory. Now let's read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. And that's when he stops and he says, This sounds like it's all about you, right? But the next passage clears it all up. What is it about? For his name's sake. It's all about him and his glory, not us. For his name's sake. So God's motivation behind his shepherding you, his provision for you, his love for you, his passion about you, really the motive in all of that isn't that you're great, it's that he's great. So the motivation is his glory, his name, his renown. And this is what you're going to see over and over and over again in the Bible in a way that God does not feel need uh, to apologize for. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. Um, uh, through all of this, I know this idea that God isn't about you, God is about God, kind of jostles our heart a little bit. Um, because everything in our culture actually is preaching the exact opposite. Everything in our culture is you deserve it and it's for you and, and this should happen. If it doesn't happen for you in this way, you have the right to be angry about that. And everything in our culture says you're the man. Everything in our culture is you are intrinsically valuable. You are, you are varsity. That's what you are. You're not JV. In fact, if someone tells you you're JV, all right, that's a slap in your spectacularly unique and beautiful face. <laughs> so it jostles us a bit because nobody is saying that. Unfortunately, it doesn't get preached very much either. Now, it's almost as if Matt Chandler knew exactly that Stephen Furtick would later on in the conference use the story of David and Goliath and make you, David, and Goliath your problems in life. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. See, there's two ways to kind of look at it. There's some people that go, this Bible's the roadmap to life. Now, I understand what they're saying. So if you've heard that from your guy, great. Uh, th this is in some ways uh, a roadmap of what we should do, where we should go. What, but, but ultimately, you can't call it the roadmap to life. Right now, I want to be straight. There's some maps. <laughs> there, there are some maps. Like right here, I've got Paul's first missionary journey. And then I believe that's the Temple Mount. And then this is just, it's the Middle East today. Uh, so there are maps back there, but ultimately it's not the roadmap to life. And if you think that way, you'll read the Bible wrong. Uh, what you'll do is you'll keep, now let me, here's what you do. You'll keep infusing yourself into the stories of the Bible like you're the hero. Now this happens all the time. All right, so I, I mean, I want to be straight. I love you enough to be straight. You're not David. All right? Your trouble in life is not Goliath. Well said, Matt Chandler. Now, what makes this very interesting is that mysteriously, when they rebroadcasted this whole conference, um, Matt Chandler's sermon just was not rebroadcasted with other ones. It just mysteriously disappeared which led people to question whether it was a bit of a cover-up because he was actually the only one preaching the gospel in that conference. Now, um, it reminds me of a verse which is quite important here. Romans 1 verse 16, I believe, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's almost as if Matt Chandler was muzzled and the other pastors that did not preach the gospel was given airtime. 
This is where this gospel of narcissism has brought us. People are lovers of themselves and have itching ears. Rightly dividing the word is using solid exegesis, reading out of the scripture what scripture is actually saying, and not reading yourself into scripture or reading what you wanted to say into scripture. Ultimately, scripture is not about us. It's all about Jesus. I'm going to end off today with a bit of a funny parody about these narcissistic, seeker-driven kind of churches. And I hope you guys enjoy this, and I will see you guys all next time. Cheerio. It's all about me. all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. No one All this for only $19.95. Like Operators do. are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing, and I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. I sing, no. Me-Me-Me Or order online at MeMyselfAndI.com Call today because no one can praise you like you. Alrighty, so there you go. So that's uh, Cruzy's Flake and it was a crunchy one. I spoke to him early in the week about that one and it was a big one to put together. So Cruzy, I'm going to let you pick from uh, A, B or C. Would you like to discuss your flake, politics or can we discuss cricket? Um, Can I pick D, all of the above? (laughs) um, You want to discuss politics? Yeah, but uh, it's the politics of uh, Papeti Kotsweti. It's a little country not far north from you that nobody will find on the map. That's right. Um, but, but let's start with cricket. Um, we are champions. That's all I'm going to say. Um, Garth doesn't get to say anything. <laughs> Can I just remind um, you of the intro to your flake? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. And then let's go back to we are the champions of the cricket. Well said, Andy. That's a pleasure. But um, it is hard to be humble when you're that, when you're that good. That's that's all I'm saying. Um, no, talking about the flake, I, th- I think it was about high time that we do something like that um, because uh, that seeker-driven kind of mentality is growing quite rapidly in the church, um, and that's crossing all denominations. And I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I consider it a blight on the, well, I call it the postmodern church, uh, Cruzy. Uh, it is mm. probably one of the biggest issues. Um, I, I don't want to... You know, say it's the biggest, but it is one of the biggest issues facing uh, the postmodern church at the moment, and it's just rampant. And we need to wake up. And I know I'm a stuck record, people. Please forgive me, but we we really have to get back to studying the scriptures. And and if we have to discuss politics, we can actually link this to politics because politics mm-hmm. lately have, um, or society in general, 
as matters all very politically correct. And that mm-hmm. kind of preaching, the seeker-driven kind of preaching, the feel-good message is also a very mm-hmm. politically correct message. So, so it's something that the world will love. Therefore, it will be a success in the world, you know, anything but well, the gospel. Well, well, that's right. That's right. And it's like a cheap grace kind of thing uh, where we know it did cost Jesus everything, free to us, but cost him everything. So it is a blight, as I say. But the the political correctness is rampant as well. It's the reason why uh, Christians won't be able to speak out in the very near future. You won't be able to talk about certain topics that I can't even mention now as we record. As we re- 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 record. I was waiting for your giggle there, Andy. No, I'm stopping now. I'm stopping. <laughs> See how long that lasts. <laughs> I bet I can make a crack in two minutes. There you go. She's got it. She's back already. Just need you to there talk. There we go. All right. So, so there you go. So what's next, Andy? <laughs> I don't know. What would you like to talk about? Well, let's go to another flake. And, okay. uh, and then we'll come back and we'll catch up with Cliff on some of the goings-on uh, at home. Cool. Well, welcome to GK's Greek Spot. Uh, and I have a very different Greek spot for you today. Um, I have a special guest live in the Bush Hut studio joining me for uh, this episode's Greek spot with GK. And I'd like to welcome for the first time, live in the Bush Hut, Graham Gould. Welcome, Graham. G'day, Garth. It's so great to be here. Um, I know you've said to me previously that I know you live in a bush hut. Well, now I know. <laughs> well, I was going to say to you, Graham, just be careful. If you go to use the outside Thunderbox, don't, um, don't step too far to the back yeah. because being several hundred metres above um, sea level, here we are on the top of the Great Dividing Range. I don't want to see you falling down the bottom and rolling up the, and ending in Brisbane or somewhere like that. The, so just watch your step. The good old long drop. That's right. And watch out for the redbacks. You've got to watch the redbacks, red belly uh, black snakes and brown snakes and fighting wallabies. <laughs> the fighting wallabies. So you've got all that to look for. Well, we've seen them on Facebook. That's right. Alrighty, so listen, um, in this episode, we're going to be looking at um, something that you suggested to me, Graham. And so I've been sort of um, sitting on this one because um, I knew that you were coming down to visit, visit the Bush Hut Studio A here. Um and so what we're going to be talking about is John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. And uh, what we're going to do, start off, I'm going to read, might read that so we all know what we're talking about. And then I'm going to ask you to um, give us a bit of the background to that. But um, So John 21, uh, 15 to 19. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had, because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, we know there's a whole lot going on in this verse. Some of that we're going to cover a bit later on. But really, um, what's the background of this verse? What's going on before we get to this? Yeah, there certainly is a lot, and um, I think we're going to get a lot out of this as we go through this Greek spot, some of it from the Greek, but also a little bit of exposition. But Mm -hmm. 
the background to this is that Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, we also have Peter's denial of Jesus, which he emphatically said that he would not deny Jesus, he would not run away. But as we know from Scripture that uh, Peter had done that. Uh, so that's some of the background. This is one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. And I think as we go through this, we'll see that this is a restoration of Peter. Now, some people will already realise, and as soon as they heard us mention this, they're going to realise why we're doing this one. Because um, when you look at this in Greek, there's a couple of things going on. Um, one of them is the use of the word uh, love. Uh, we know that in, in the Greek there are uh, different words used in this that can only be translated as love in English. So did you want to talk a bit about that and tell us what they are? Well, I think that's the major thing that's always puzzled me about this passage. Mm. And I'm still not sure that I fully understand it. But mm. in getting ready to, to record this Greek spot, I feel like I have a much deeper appreciation of the passage. But someone pointed out to me years ago, and you don't generally see it in the English unless someone points it out in your English Bible, but they are different Greek words. In most English translations, it's, um, Simon, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. And that's repeated another two times. Um, but it's actually different Greek words hiding in behind that. In my translation, um, the one that I've got open here, the New Heart English Bible, I think it is, or something, they actually have affection um, instead of love um, on a number of occasions, just to, to highlight that difference that you wouldn't ordinarily see in the English um, but the trouble with that is that the two words that are being used, yes, they are different, but they also can be used as synonyms to a great degree. So the first two times that Jesus says to Simon Peter, do you love me? He's using the word agape. Um, Simon Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter replies with, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which is not as strong a word for love, but does have a lot of overlap in meaning with agape. And then that happens a second time. But the third time... The phileo one is more affectionate, isn't it? It's more brotherly, affectionate love. Yeah, it has a, it has a range of meanings that comes very close to the, the strongest meaning that agape can have. Mm. Um, and yeah, it can mean friendship. It can, like the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Right. Um, and it's translated that way on times, mm. at times in scripture. Mm. Um, but that word philo or phileo is often um, linked with other words, other Greek words to make one word. Mm. Love of money, for example, and, and other words are found in scripture, but it's often on its own. Um, and it's, a, it's quite a strong word for love. Um, and it can mean almost the same as agape. Um, but at times it it's not, doesn't have the same strength of meaning. It can mean just affection, um, a, a lesser form of what we would consider love. Um, and that's one of the problems that we have. When you translate into another language, you can get this overlap of meanings and you've got to try and what's the right word here and because they often will only plumb for one word and they won't give you the notes um, you're not getting the sense of what it was meaning to the Greek hearers 
at the time. And this is a perfect example. Love in English has a very vast range of meanings, whereas in Greek they had at least four words um, for the same ideas that we may use the word love for. Um, one of those doesn't appear in our Bible, but the other three do, the other three Greek words. And you often won't see that unless you go digging. This is the advantage of doing a little bit of, of Greek digging, is you'll often find things, and often it's quite easy. Programs like Esword make it very, very accessible. Just a click of a button, and there's notes from Barnes or Clark or great scholars of the past, Robertson and others. Um, but yeah, the third time, Jesus asks the question as, do you phileo me? And Peter gets aggrieved on this occasion and answers in the same way he has the other two occasions. You know that I phileo you. You know that that's how I feel. So then the question perhaps should be asked, so what's going on? What does that mean? So, so what I feel like Jesus is doing here is he's restoring Peter. Peter had denied Jesus three times after saying emphatically, absolutely not. I will not do that. Everybody else may desert you, but I will not. And then Jesus says to him, you will deny me three times. And Peter does. Well, here Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Well, who's the these that Jesus is talking about? Well, one possibility is, do you love me more than these fishing boats and fishing nets? <laughs> well, perhaps. Do you love me more than you love these other men? Well, perhaps. But I think if you think of this in the context of this is a restoration, and I'm sure it is. This is Jesus coming to Peter, spending time with Peter, and Peter had denied Jesus three times. So three times Jesus asks Peter the question, do you love me? Even though in the Greek he uses different words, but most likely um, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek to, to Peter. But that's what's recorded for us by the Holy Spirit. Two times one word, and then the third time he uses the same word as Peter. Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love me more than they do? Because Peter had previously claimed, I love you more than anybody else. Everyone else may desert you and I won't. And it was a lie. He didn't realize it was a lie, but that turned out not to be true. Peter couldn't hold to that. So Jesus is saying to him, what's your position now, Peter? Do you still claim that you love me more than anybody else loves me? And Peter says, well, no, that's not what I'm claiming, essentially. Peter says he doesn't respond with agapeo. Well, that's not how the Holy Spirit records it. Peter says, I phileo you, and you know. He says to Jesus, you know that I phileo you. And the third time he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter is saying, I'm not going to claim that I love you more than anyone else. I'm just going to claim that I do love you. That's the best that I can claim. And that's what I think is going on here. And Jesus pushes him to that point. He uses agapeo twice. And then the third time uses phileo, the same as Peter does. And whether that's what Jesus actually did or that's just the way the Holy Spirit's recorded it for us in Greek, I think that's the point that God wants us to get. 
is that Peter had previously claimed that he loved Jesus more than anyone else. Now the point is being made. All Peter can claim is, I just have a mustard seed of faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right. I think I'm, I'm on the same page as you, so to speak. Um, and um, I, I, had, I had heard of this, the existence of this one here. Obviously, when I've been reading in the Bible in Greek, I've come across these uh, things like this before, and I love to look at these. You know, I'm fascinated by these type of things, and I'm glad you came up with this one. Um, in this passage also, there are a number of things that we are not going to go into, but there, are, there is more in here. Um, you, you know, where he mentions uh, lambs, sheep, um, feeding the sheep, caring for his sheep. Um, there's that, that to consider as well. I'm not sure if we'll have time for that. But one thing I wanted to point out, um, I, I just wanted to do some reading from um, from the commentary in the Net Bible, which will help us maybe to understand that this is not really unusual in the Greek language that they might do this. And it may not be uh, something for us to be too... Um, make too big a deal of. So I'm reading from their commentary. Is there a significant difference in meaning between the two words for love used in our passage? Aside from Oregon, who saw a distinction in the meaning of the two words, most of the Greek fathers like Chrysostom and Cyril of Alexandria saw no real difference of meaning, nor did Augustine nor the translators of the Old Latin. This was also the view of, Re of the Reformation Greek scholars Erasmus and Grotius. The suggestion that a distinction in meaning should be seen comes primarily from a number of British scholars of the 19th century, century especially Trench, Westcott and Plummer. But most modern scholars decline to see a real difference in the meaning of the two words in this context, and that lists another, a, a number of other uh, modern scholars. Um, but here's the reasons why they don't see a real significant difference. Uh, there are three significant reasons for seeing no real difference in the meaning of agapao and phileo in these verses. One, the author had a habit of introducing the slight stylistic variations in repeated material without any significant difference in meaning. Now, they gave some examples here and there. Um, it's John 3.3, 3, uh, John 3.5, John 7.34 and 13.33. So I'm just giving those so people can go and look at them themselves. An examination of the uses of agapao and phileo in the fourth gospel seem to indicate a general interchangeability between the two. Both terms are used of God's love for man, of the Father's love for the Son, of Jesus' love for men, of the love of men for men, and of the love of men for Jesus. Here's something we discussed earlier as well. If... As it seems possible, the original conversation took place in Aramaic or even Hebrew. There would not have been any difference expressed because both Aramaic and Hebrew have only one basic word for love. Uh, and then it goes on to mention that the uh, Septuagint, uh, both agapeo and phileo, are used to translate the same Hebrew word for love, although agapeo is more frequent, right? It is significant that in the Syriac version of the New Testament, only one verb is used to translate uh, our word love here. Um, now, you had a comment earlier before we were recording about the significance, 
or otherwise if it was in Aramaic? And what, what was it that you said? Um, I, I feel like it is interesting to know that with Aramaic that there's not that distinction. But my point in response to that would be, but God didn't record the Bible. The Bible's not inspired in Aramaic. It's inspired in Greek. And God's mm-hmm. recorded this that right. way. He's recorded it making a distinction. He seems to me yep. that he's deliberately making a distinction. If God wanted us to think that there was no distinction between agape and philo, mm. then why use two different words right. In this passage, I think he is trying to tell us something. Mm-hmm. Now, whether he's trying to tell us what I think he's trying to tell us, or maybe it's something else, but that's that's how it seems to me. There is something going on here, and we can't. I, I partly agree that we can't make too big a deal no, about the difference no. between agape and philo. Mm-hmm. There's not that big a difference. Mm. But there is something going on. There is something going on, and that's why I love reading the New Testament in Greek, because you come Mm. up with these sorts of things. And it makes you study it closer, Graham. You want to dig out and find it. And now, as we both would probably agree here, we we really haven't touched this, and we really (laughs) can't say that we know for sure what is going on for here. We've just scratched at this. Right. Right. I'll leave it to the listener to make up their own mind. Once again, I would recommend Esau as a fantastic resource with massive amounts of free material, dictionaries and concordances and commentaries and all sorts of other stuff. You can go and do a bit of research and see what others have said and find out a lot of these things for yourself. And, yeah, come well, to your own conclusion. But well, well, I agree. I agree. And that's why we're doing this, so mm. that we can give people something to think about and something to chew on and something to investigate. And, and, and if they come up with something to write to us about, right? Absolutely. Let us know what they think. Love to hear it. I um I, I do have some support here though that I've found and it's very interesting. I just give the third um the third point that these guys in the net bible make and that is that um uh and let's see what you think about this as well. Peter's answers to the question asked with agapa o are yes even though he answers using the verb phileo. If he's being asked to love Jesus on a higher or more spiritual level, his answers give no indication of this and one would be forced to say in order to maintain a consistent distinction between the two verbs, that Jesus finally concedes defeat and accepts only the lower form of love, which is all that Peter is capable of offering. Thus, it seems best to regard the interchange between agapao and phileo in these verses as a minor stylistic variation of the author, consistent with his use of minor variations and repeated material elsewhere and not indicative of any real difference in meaning thus no attempt has been made to distinguish between the two greek words in the translation and they mean this translation what do you reckon um what they're arguing against there isn't what i've said the passage is saying no yeah yeah they're arguing against something that other people have said and what i'm saying is going on in the passage is that jesus is trying to point out to peter you can't love me at that higher level. That's the point that's being made. Mm. So Jesus is not conceding defeat. Jesus has made his point. They, they're arguing the exact opposite. And yeah, that I, I think, well, that's that's my perception of what's going on well, in the passage anyway. Well, well, I think there is something going on. I think it's more, but I don't think it's a big deal, by the way. No. It's not, we, we shouldn't make too big a deal, but there is more going on. As you pointed out, it's in Greek for a reason, right? Yep. And now we'll have people listen to us say, no, well, I only read English. Yes, but, you know, all the manuscripts we have, the earliest ones, it was written in Greek, and it's written in Greek for a reason. Let's all together try and find out what that reason is. But before we finish up, I want to give you something in um, 
uh, that I found outside of the Bible where a uh, let, let's say you know in a secular setting as far as Christianity is concerned where the these two um, words are used in the one sentence right yeah and you're going to have to trust my Greek translation here because I couldn't find a um, English translation of this so I had to translate it for myself so you got every, listeners you'll have to trust me and if I get this wrong someone write in and please tell me but apparently in Antony's funeral oration over Caesar as uh, written in Dion Cassius, right? He says, he's quoted as saying, right, so we're going to have some very bad Greek here, so just bear with me and then I'll give you my translation, right? Ephilisate auton hos patira ki egapesate hos you ergatain. Now, what this is saying, my translation is this. Phileo, love him as father and agapao him as benefactor so it is it's in this sentence here uh pre-new testament it's making a distinction the distinction i'm hearing is one's more relationship one's more authority right and that's what i was saying about my 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 feeling about the word phileo is i reckon it's more uh i've got a feeling it's got more to do with affection love him as father and love him as benefactor Phileo him as father and agape him as benefactor. So there is a distinction being made there. And I think it's good. You've made the point um, at the end of the day, you know, men wrote the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? We see it as God's word. It's meant to be there for a reason, but it doesn't hurt to go outside the Bible to see how the language was used. Hmm. All I'm trying to say here is that I did find that there is a distinction used elsewhere and really, all that does is make me want to dig further. What about you? Absolutely. <laughs> and that, the, the benefit of this, and you said earlier that we don't want to you know, distract people. Well, you didn't say distract, but we don't want to distract people too much from reading their Bibles and go, oh, well, I'm only reading it in English, no, therefore no. I'm not doing it properly. No, no, that's not the point. The point is not stop reading your Bible. The point is, if you want to dig deeper, that's it. There is gems to be found. That's right, and that's and how I see them. Yes, I don't know for sure that we've pulled out a gem. I feel like <laughs> that I've learned something out of this, and I believe that it increases my my appreciation for God and and the truths of His Word. Um, if it has for you, great. If it hasn't, well, God bless. And um, maybe next time. Um, but uh, there are things to be found. And yes, we don't have, most of us don't read Greek, um, but we can read a Bible study written in English that does tell us a little more about the Greek. And um, we should not just rely on the, the bare basics. Um, we should want to learn more. And I hope, I, I encourage all the listeners, and I hope that that's, you know, that's why you're listening to Greek Spots, <laughs> is because you want to learn more, mm. um, as we all do. You know, the workman that needeth not to be ashamed, the student that Study. is Study. studying. Mm. Mm. Good. Well, anyway, I think we'll leave it there, Graham. Thanks for joining me live in the Bush Art Studio, and if we get the opportunity, I'd like you to come back again, but just take my warning about the Thunderbox. <laughs> That's right. I'll watch out. I'll tread very carefully. All right. Okay, so thanks for that, and um, don't forget you can write in to us at mail at likeflintradio.com, or you can write to me personally if you like, gk at likeflintradio.com, and if you've got any questions for Graham, I'll pass them on to him, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. So I'll just say thank you, God bless, and it's Huru from the Guru. Anyway, so that one is a 
one that you really do have to research for yourself. I hope it encourages people to look for themselves. And if people's got suggestions or comments for either myself or Graham or both of us, I'm happy to field uh, emails on the topic. But anyway, back to you, Andy, in the Cape Town studio. We have a studio. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise, but anyway. Why am I never invited there? <laughs> Hang on, just a minute. You guys, I've got photos of you guys in the Cape Town studio. Mm. I've got photos. I've put them in the group. Um, I'm sorry to say I'm actually out of coffee at the moment, Chris, so you wouldn't really want to be here. That's why I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anything you want to share, Cliff, about being back home, like differences, cultural stuff? Yeah, there's always little things. Weather's a big difference. Of course, this time of year, it's really kind of pretty because – we have so many trees, just so many colors. I was going to ask you, what's the diet like? Do you miss the Turkish-type diet? Yes and no. <laughs> I miss things like uh, sea meat and uh, Iskander. I really miss their yogurt and uh, the iron. Iron is the yogurt you drink. Okay. See, over here in the States, we like uh, sweet yogurt. We like it sweeter. Sure. Personally, I like the Turkish yogurt where it's really tart. Do they sell camel's milk in Turkey? No, you don't see too many camels there. Okay. Well, well, the only camels I saw in Turkey the whole time I was there was when I was out east. Right. What I was going to say, the reason I asked is because camel's milk is very popular in the Middle East. And uh, apparently right. if you drink it raw, if you do your research, and I'm not telling anyone to drink it raw because in some places you're not allowed to. For example, here in Australia, yeah. you are not, not allowed uh, to drink camel's milk raw. You can't, well, you can't sell it. But Australia has the largest population of wild camels in the world. Did you guys know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? It was a surprise to also, hear it. Also the biggest export of camels in the world. Yeah. And yeah, they go export on, camels to the Middle East, believe it or not. Well, we do. We export <laughs> champion camels to the Middle East. We also export the meat and live camels. <laughs> but one of the major issues is that they're, they're considered to be, and inverted commas, plague proportions, and have several hundred thousand have been culled out of the herd. And the, the thing is, they've done a, some research done recently, well, it's long-term research, into the benefits of uh, raw camel's milk. And I saw it recently, and what they're saying is that uh, we shouldn't be shooting, destroying what could be a great export, not just the meat or the live camels, but also the milk that comes from the camels, and we shouldn't be putting them down. So uh, I was quite surprised. I've driven in the outback and dodged the odd wild brumby. Uh, That's our wild horses. But I didn't go far enough out to see the, the camels, but apparently they are in the they're in the millions, to be honest, because we've got the most in the world. But but I didn't see them when I was out the back. And I was just interested because you were mentioning sort of those, um, can I say, dairy products if we're talking about camels, but, you know, yogurt and things like that, Cliff. I wondered if Turkey was into the, the camel milk, which is why I brought that conversation up. And, Andy, there is your cultural clip. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, the Turks, everybody keeps thinking the Turks have some things to do with camels. The only thing they do with camels is camel wrestling. Oh, <laughs> what? come on. No, I'm serious. That's the only thing they do. I mean, the Turks are horse people. And now uh, on you know, WWF. They, they thundered across the, the steps on the horses. I hope we caught Cruzy's comment there. I think he, is it WCW, um, Cruzy? Worldwide camel wrestling? Something like that, yeah. With a a famous (laughs) champion called Humphrey. Humphrey. 
the three <laughs> and, and he wears a mask. <laughs> he does, yes. Cool. So he's a Spanish camel. Yeah, I don't know how you tell that because um, they don't speak that often. But yeah, <laughs> Humphrey, the Spanish-speaking Mexican wrestling camel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very intimidating fun, name for a wrestler, editing. isn't it? Humphrey. Have fun editing this one, Andy. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it is really good to have the four of us on at once. Um, listen, okay, so uh, enough waffle. Let's go to another flake. And can you set it up for us, please? Tell us what it's about. Yeah, we actually recorded this quite some time ago now. It's obviously... Wow, that sounded like we were back in Turkey and they were calling for prayer. Um, <clears throat> this was... Um, <laughs> this was Eusebius's History of the Church. And we, we were looking at a section where he talks about the Montanists. So that's what we're going to be chatting about today. Awesome. Montanus and his band of false prophets. To counter the so-called Phrygian heresy, the power which fights for truth raised up an effective and invincible weapon at Hierapolis in the person of Apollinarius, already referred to in these pages. With him were associated many learned men of the day who have left us ample material for reconstructing the history. At the beginning of his polemic against these heretics, one of these writers first indicates that he had also argued with them orally to refute their pretensions. His preface runs as follows. My dear Vercius Marcellus, it is now a very long time since you invited me to write some kind of treatise against the sect called after Multiades, but I have been rather hesitant until now, not from inability to refute falsehood and witness to the truth, but as a precaution against the danger that some people might think I was adding another paragraph or clause to the wording of the new covenant of the gospel, to which nothing can be added, from which nothing can be taken away, by anyone who has determined to live by the gospel itself. But a little while ago I visited Ancra in Galatia and found the local church deafened with the noise of this new craze. Not prophecy as they call it, but pseudo-prophecy, as I shall shortly prove. So far as I was able, the Lord helping me, I spoke out for days on end in the church about these matters and replied to every argument they put forward. The church was delighted and confirmed in the truth, while the enemy were repulsed for the time being, and the opposition demoralized. So I was asked by the local presbyters, with the support of my fellow presbyter, Zoticus of Otrus, to leave them a summary of what I had said against the opponents of the word of truth. This I could not do, but I promised that if the Lord allowed me I would write it here and send it to them without delay. After completing his explanation on these lines at the beginning of his book, he goes on to describe the originator of this heretical sect as follows. Their opposition and recent schematic heresy in relation to the church originated thus. There is, it appears, a village near the Phrygian border of Mycia called Ardabo. There, it is said that a recent convert named Montanus, while Gratus was proconsul of Syria, in his unbridled ambition to reach the top, laid himself open to the adversary, 
was filled with spiritual excitement and suddenly fell into a kind of trance, an unnatural ecstasy. He raved and began to chatter and talk nonsense, prophesying in a way that conflicted with the practice of the church handed down generation by generation from the beginning. Of those who listened at that time to his sham utterances, some were annoyed, regarding him as possessed, a demoniac in the grip of a spirit of error, a disturber of the masses. They rebuked him and tried to stop his chatter, remembering the distinction drawn by the Lord and his warning to God vigilantly against the coming of false prophets. Others were elated, as if by the Holy Spirit or a prophetic gift, were filled with conceit and forgot the Lord's distinction. They welcomed a spirit that injured and deluded the mind and led the people astray. They were beguiled and deceived by it, so that it could not now be reduced to silence. By some art, or rather by methodical use of a maligned artifice, the devil contrived the ruin of the disobedient and was most undeservedly honored by them. He then secretly stirred up and inflamed minds close to the true faith, raising up in this way two others, women whom he filled with a sham spirit so that they chattered crazily inopportunely and wildly like Montanus himself. On those who were elated and exultant above him, the spirit bestowed favors, swelling their heads with his extravagant promises. Sometimes it reproved them pointedly and convincingly to their faces to avoid appearing uncritical. Though few of the Phrygians were deceived, they were taught by this arrogant spirit to denigrate the entire Catholic Church throughout the world because the spirit of pseudo-prophecy received neither honor nor admission into it, for the Asian believers repeatedly and in many parts of Asia had met for this purpose, and after investigating the recent utterances pronounced them profane and ejected the heresy. Then at last its devotees were turned out of the church and excommunicated. Well, there we go. That is Eusebius, the history of the church from Christ to Constantine, talking about Montanus and his band of false prophets. What did I say to you the other day, G? I said uh, Montanus and his band of merry men. Well, yes, it was like a reference to Robin Hood and his band of merry men, but yeah. band of merry false prophets is uh, more <laughs> accurate. That's right, yeah. Hey, can you give us a bit of a background time and place? Because I had a bit of a look at this and I was interested to see that Montanus operated in what is now modern day Ankara in Turkey. Yeah, interesting, hey? So yeah. um, I'm going to just read a little bit of uh, just whatever I could find. Um, they seem to be two very differing schools of thought. Some were very pro-Montanism and I uh, thought that they were true Christians and then others obviously really do regard them as heretics. So this is just a little excerpt from a book called Christianity Outside the Box by Nigel Scotland. I don't know really where he stands on the whole issue. I'm really just reading it for the uh, historical background to what he has to say about Montanism. So he says that Montanism 
was a movement within Christianity that originated in Phrygia. Did I say that correctly? Phrygia? I, I think, I think we worked out it's Phrygia, uh, Phrygia, but we'd have to ask Cliffy. But I think it's Phrygia. Phrygia. In the middle years of the second century, it became known by some of its opponents as the Phrygian heresy, despite the fact that its beliefs were orthodox and creedal. Others refer to it as the new prophecy. One of the problems when it comes to studying Christian groups who were outside of the box is that very often most of what we know about them comes from the pens of their opponents. So that's just something to bear in mind, but I think it's still worth looking at this, and later we're going to look at it against the Word of God and just see what that has to say about this. Well, um, what I was going to say to you is that, well, in my little bit of reading that I've done, Mm -hmm. one of the early writers said that this was a new craze and not prophecy, but pseudo-prophecy. So is that the focus of... Uh, the error is that is that the basics of it that it was uh, regarded as pseudo prophecy by the Orthodox Church at the time, and 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 I say that with the uh, small o Orthodox at this right. point. It certainly seems to be. I mean, that's exactly what uh, Eusebius quotes in this letter to Averchius uh, Marcellus, and um, it does talk about how the local church was deafened with the noise of this new craze, and so that's how it was probably understood. In fact, it it talks about it not being prophecy, as they called it, but pseudo-prophecy. So there seems to have been an understanding of what prophecy was, traditionally understood to be, and that this was somehow different to it. And so um, I hope that we can kind of have a look at some of those things that make it different and why it was considered heretical. So let's have a little look at who Montanus himself was. There's a chapter here called The Man of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Montanus had been a priest of the cult of Sybil, C-Y-B-E-L-E. She is the Phrygian. Phrygian. (laughs) Phrygian. It doesn't matter. She is the Phrygian Earth Mother whose priests ritually castrated themselves as an act of total commitment to her. Right, sorry for interrupting. This is the mother goddess type figure, isn't it, from the ancient world? So originally he was a priest in this cult. Um, So it's just something to bear in mind as we go through this. So their priests ritually castrated themselves as an act of total commitment to her. Uh, this fact may well explain some of Montanus's later strong views on celibacy, and we find out that you know he bans marriage, and so that was part of this uh, movement. The Sibylline priesthood were assistants to the priestesses and served in particular by teaching the rituals. About the year A.D. 157, Montanus became a Christian in what was in all probability a dramatic and powerful conversion experience in which he was overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. Montanus was almost certainly baptized at the time of his conversion and sensed his call to preach very early on. He began his prophetic ministry in the village of Ardabao in Phrygia. Montanus appears to have been particularly captivated by the passage in the Gospel of John where the evangelist speaks of the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. On occasion, Montanus spoke as if he himself was the paraclete, and this has led to some misunderstandings. For instance, Didymus recorded that Montanus says, I am the Father, and I am the Son, and I am the paraclete. But this need not be 
taken to imply anything other than he was claiming to speak in God's name, in much the same way that preachers sometimes preface their sermons with the words, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we will look at that again a bit later, but this is the words of Nigel Scotland and what he's making of this. So we know from the reading that's in Eusebius that one of the main criticisms of that guy that went there and investigated this. Um, it's Apollinaris. Apollinarius. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. Apollinarius. That's yeah. right. Like, is it? Yeah. Okay. So he said that um, what he witnessed and what he found there was that they were known to rave. They were like in a mystical trance and chatter and talk nonsense, right? Right, right. And I think it also necessary to point out that Montanus wasn't on his own. Um, he did have two women prophetesses that were figured greatly. And who was it? Uh, Priscilla and Maximilla? Yeah, Is Priscilla and Max and Miller. And I can read a little bit about them as well and just kind of give a little bit about their background and that might help as well. Um, yeah. This is still from Nigel Scotland's book. He just says, uh, alongside Montanus, two significant leaders were the prophetesses, Priscilla and Max and Miller, whose authority was soon widely acknowledged. Indeed, Montanus not only valued them, but treated them as equals. He wrote of Priscilla as being the mouthpiece of the paraclete. Both Priscilla and Maximilla were noble women whose prophetic gifts Montanus encouraged and nurtured. Epiphanius stated that by the 4th century the ordination of women in Montanism was common practice and the unknown author of Predestinatus stated that the Papusians are giving leadership to women so that among them these are honoured like a priest. Montanus's call for chastity and abstinence from sexual relationships should come as no surprise in view of his own emasculated condition, which dated from his years as a priest in the cult of the goddess Sibyl. Jerome suggested his castration was out of devotion to her. It was on account of this injunction to celibacy that Priscilla had left her own husband when she joined the movement. Uh, Eusebius cited Apollinus, who wrote, It is evident that these prophetesses, from the time they were filled with the Spirit, were the very first to leave their husbands. How could they then lie so blatantly as to call Priscilla a virgin? It was possibly for this reason that on one occasion at Papusa, Maximilla was forced to submit to an unsuccessful exorcism of the spirit within her by Bishop Zoticus, who planted himself in front of her and tried to silence the spirit at work in her. So I'll leave it there. They were regarded as being possessed, weren't they? Yes, Zoticus did go and try to cast spirits out of them. Right. Uh, another criticism that I found as well was that this source reports that Montanus claimed that their revelation was direct from the Holy Spirit and it could supersede the authority of Jesus or Paul or anybody else. And that quote can be found in William Platcher's book, A History of Christian Theology and Introduction. Hmm. So they obviously thought themselves above Scripture as well in what they proclaimed. And yeah. we have talked before about things like this, you and I, about, you know, the excesses that are in the um, Pentecostal or charismatic churches. Right. And I did find also in my readings as well that parallels have been drawn between Montanism and modern day uh, movements such as Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement and the new apostolic reformation. Yeah. Um, and that's from Robeck's book, Montanism and Present-Day Prophets, an article in Numa, the Journal of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. So it seems like there's a whole lot going on here that 
uh, would be outside of what would be generally accepted in small o orthodox Christianity. But I wanted to include some contrasts that I've also found and differences between modernism and capital O Orthodox Christianity, because this will give you a bit of an idea. And this might cover a little bit that you've spoken about, but but it might help our listeners understand some of the problems believers had with this movement back in that day and probably the problems we would have with it today. So the beliefs of Montanism contrasted with Orthodox Christianity in the following ways. The belief that the prophecies of the Montanists superseded and fulfilled the doctrines proclaimed by the apostles, which, like I alluded to earlier, they, you know, they didn't hesitate to exceed what was written in the scriptures or was uh, preached by the apostles. Mm. The encouragement of ecstatic prophesying, contrasting with the more sober and disciplined approach to theology dominant in Orthodox Christianity at the time and since. Okay, so it seems like what we might call it babbling today, but they raved and muttered and carried on a bit crazy. And we would argue that some of us would see that in some of the charismatic churches today. And as we were going to discuss towards the end here, Andy, that uh, that behavior cannot be supported by the scriptures. And we will go into that um, a little bit later. But the view that Christians, also this one, the view that Christians who fell from grace could not be redeemed In contrast, the orthodox Christian view that contrition could lead to a sinner's restoration to the church. Um, Now, whether you believe in eternal security or otherwise, it seemed that these guys believed that once you fell from grace, you couldn't be redeemed. So there was no redemption after that. Whereas in general, it's accepted that anyone who repents is accepted. And uh, I would say that that would be widely believed. I mean, 99% of Christianity would accept a call to repentance and a repentant heart uh, restores one's place with God. Now, whether we're talking about salvation there or something else, I'll leave that up to you to decide because I'm not going to tell you either way. But repentance is big in Christianity and widely accepted and encouraged. So it would seem that these guys didn't believe that you could repent and make a return to the church once you fell. Uh, So I'd say that's quite well outside of anything that majority of Christianity would believe. The prophets of Montanism did not speak as messengers of God. Oh, you've you've mentioned this earlier, but let's have it again. Um, So thus saith the Lord, but rather described themselves as possessed by God and spoke in his person. Therefore, I am the father, the word and the paraclete said uh, Montanus, right? Right. Uh, This Possession by a spirit which spoke while the prophet was incapable of resisting is described by the spirit of Montanus. Behold, the man is like a liar, and I art like the plectrum. The man sleeps, and I am awake. Now, we're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians 14 later on to contrast that point of view with what the scriptures say, right? right. Now, here's one I'm a bit surprised about, but it's written here, so we'll, we'll, we'll share it. Now, um, the difference between Montanism and Orthodox Christianity, and that's capital O, Orthodox, a stronger emphasis on the avoidance of sin and on church discipline than in Orthodox Christianity. They emphasize chastity, including forbidding marriage. Now, I would say that we probably, uh, we also find in the Bible an emphasis on the avoidance of sin and church discipline. There's plenty of times where uh, Paul and others speak about discipline and order in the church. It must be there. Um, Paul went so far as to name names and to tell us how we're supposed to act within the church. So I don't have a problem with that. Now, what do you think about this part here? Um, They emphasize chastity. I have no problem with that. 
But what about including forbidding remarriage? What do you think about that, Andy? Wow. It sounds almost like they just wanted them to be non-sexual beings. Because we can, well, we can find examples in Scripture where remarriage is permitted under certain circumstances. So obviously that is one that wouldn't line up with generally accepted small o orthodox Christianity because uh, remarriage isn't necessarily forbidden. It almost seems like they are influenced by Montanus's understanding of the civil cult than it was of it, just it what does. was in the word, actually. It does. What I was going to say also, um, this idea of this sort of ecstatic chattering and this sort of stuff, I understand, was part of pagan rituals anyway when they were practicing pharmacia and perhaps they were opening themselves up to possession And they would go into these weird trances and that. And that's what's described about Montanus of the day. And so perhaps that also, too, is a hangover from his previous life in the cult of Sybil. Could very well be. I was going to ask you, um, I'll just finish this one here. And then I want to ask you about this business about the dyeing of the hair and uh, the painting of the eyes. But I also note this article also says that Jerome and other church leaders claim that the Montanists of their own day held the belief that the Trinity consisted of only a single person as opposed to the orthodox view that the Trinity is one God of three persons. So uh, I didn't know that about them either. Did you come across that? Um, Not within the reading section, no. Um, Right. And I'm wondering who is that person then? Would that be the Holy Spirit? Because that's who they seem to emphasize. So I'm just wondering who that would have been then. Uh, It says here that most of the later Montanists were of the modalist camp. So, Hmm. but I I didn't see that unless I skipped over it, but I didn't see it in the Eusebius reading. But anyway, let's move on. Listen, the list of things that we could say are outside of accepted practice. Okay, so we have this idea of almost a frenzy that they would go into, like a trance. Okay, so it's reported as a trance. But also this idea of, um, um, what was the idea about dyeing their hair, painting their eyes and sitting at the gambler's table or something like that? What was that part? Yeah, there are a number of things that we could probably try and look at because I think it's it's important to look at how this is written. I think it's very well written and it does help us try to understand what it was that made this heretic. So this is a little bit later in the reading, but it reminds us that all the fruits of a prophet must be submitted to examination. And we'll go through that again. Um, Later it says, tell me, does a prophet dye his hair? Does a prophet paint his eyelids? Does a prophet love ornaments? Does a prophet visit the gaming tables and play dice? Does a prophet do business as a money lender? So those are some of the kind of questions that get asked here. These prophets accepting gifts and money. They also talk about these prophets, how they they would take money from even the poor people. Uh, So not only the rich, but also the poor, the widows um, and orphans. And so there are a lot of things that they were doing that, the way that this reading describes, they lay themselves open to the adversary. Well, um, that's right. And I think I think it's fair to say that you could understand how people could draw the similarities between um, this sect or cult, as I'm, I'm, I'm calling this one a cult myself personally, and the modern-day televangelists who are there for the money, right. um, who dress very sharply, and it is about appearance because this is what it's sort of saying to me. 
Uh, it is about the appearance, and they have no hesitation in taking money from the poor, the widows, and the orphans, right. and and make big promises along with that as well, and drawing a very broad sweep through that. But people will know um, the sort of people that I'm talking about. Right. But the other thing, though, Andy, as well, is you've got this evidence that they also lied. Yes. Because how could a this married woman? Which one was it? Um, was it Maxim uh, it was- Miller? Priscilla, actually. And, Priscilla. Uh, yeah, it talks about how Priscilla left her husband pretty soon after she became a prophetess. and um, But then they started referring to her as a virgin. As a virgin, right. So we have all this strange stuff going on that's not right. part of uh, accepted Christianity. And really, you know, in our last show that we did with Dr. Bock, we discussed a lot of this stuff um, that in this era. Now, what era are we talking here? We're talking mid to late second century, aren't we? Yeah. I know Eusebius writes about it a lot later because he was later, but the era is then, right? And as we talked about um, with Dr. Bock in our last show, the people of the mid to second century certainly knew what the gospel was. They had an understanding what the truth was because they had the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They had the hymns and the songs that they sung. They had the stories that were told, and they had the at least the Gospels and some of the writings of, say, Paul and definitely John. Um, and we know John was doing the rounds because uh, Montanus himself referred to the writings of John, in, uh, especially he enjoyed the book of Revelation. That's right. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, I say that a bit facetiously, but we know that the truth was widespread in that era. The truth as we accept it today Uh, 1,800 years later, was known in that era so that, can I say, the true church would have recognized these people for what they were and no doubt, if you read Eusebius and others, they called them for what they were. That's right. Would you agree with that sort of rundown? Yeah, definitely, because in this, you know, it's highlighted the way in which this conflicted with the practice of the church as it was known that had been handed down generation by generation from the beginning. So I think that that's really a key to understanding that they could see that something here, something that was being practiced by the Montanists, was not in accordance with what they understood from the beginning. So I think it's, right. it is and such a key. I want to quote someone from the ancient world, and he's a very good friend of yours because um, you're a student of Latin. And, um <laughs> And so we know, um, you know, Jerome, who who gave us the Vulgate, you know, the Bible in Latin. Right. Um, This is what he said, and I think this rings true. This will ring true for a lot of people and will resonate, I'm sure, with a lot of people listening. So Jerome's letter 41, verse 2, we tell them, and that's the Montanus, we tell them that we do not so much reject prophecy, for this is attested by the passion of the Lord. Right as refuse to receive prophets whose utterances fail to accord with the scriptures old and new. So Mm. I'm supporting basically what Jerome's saying there. In that era, people knew what was right and what was wrong according to the scriptures as we do now. And I think the point that he's making there is now there will be Pentecostals and um, people of charismatic nature listening to us and I don't want them to think that we're picking on them because... Um, Jerome here is pointing out that in that era, they were called out for their false prophecies that were outside of what this uh, accepted Christianity stood for. So for me, and others might disagree, but for me, we have um, Paul saying in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul, 
uh, wrote to the Corinthians himself and told them not to exceed what is written. So um, for me, I see Jerome is saying here that these people are going in their prophecies are going beyond what is written in the scriptures. Do you think that's a fair uh, evaluation of that point? Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, there is this distinction that there was prophecy. They understood that term because they call this a pseudo-prophecy. And so I think they are really trying to show a distinction here. That's right. Yeah, so they understood both. And perhaps it's good just to list a couple of these things just to reiterate some of what he talks about as being pseudo, and then let's look at uh, what the Bible has to say about it and then try and do a bit of a comparison. Right. Some of the things that uh, get mentioned here are that he was filled with spiritual excitement mm-hmm. and suddenly fell into a kind of trance and unnatural ecstasy. So it's quite an interesting way to explain that. He raved. Yeah. He raved. Yes. Right? Yes. So that yes. kind of talks about being out of control. Um, yes. And began to chatter and talk nonsense. So again, it's just an out of control thing, something that sure. it almost sounds like possession to me. And sure. then prophesying in a way that conflicted with the practice of the church handed down generation by generation from the beginning. Um, they rebuked him trying to stop his chatter, remembering the distinction drawn by the Lord and warning to God vigilantly against the coming of false prophets. And we can see that in Matthew 7 verse 15. Others were elated as if by the Holy Spirit or a prophetic gift. They were filled with conceit. Okay, so look at the right, fruit now. Right, what is the fruit right, here? They're filled right. with conceit and forgot the Lord's distinction. They welcome a spirit that injured and deluded the mind and led the people astray. So again, fruit. What is the fruit of this? What has happened as a result? Um, So it's led people astray. They were beguiled and deceived by it so that they could not now be reduced to silence. So then chaos ruled and they could not even stop them from continuing. So I, I think these are all just very interesting fruit that we can and, examine and, now. And in the day their prophecies were proven to be false because I read that uh, right. one of the women was prophesying um, wars and uh, disruptions and um, one of the authors was saying even years after her death none of these things had happened. That's right. right? I so certainly proven... have read where some claim that many of their prophecies were proven. So I'm just throwing that in there for the balance. But the thing is, I think when we really Did examine the example? fruit, I didn't see an example, to be honest. Mm. I did not see an example. Well, well, so, well this, this author was giving an example where they, one of the women did predict these things, and of course right. they didn't come to pass. And I, I seem to think that was uh, Maximilia that they were uh, it, it talking been, about, uh, I yeah. think so, yeah. So, again, so if we're looking at the fruit, which is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. We must examine sure. all these things, and a prophet, as you well know, uh, must be subjected to that examination, right? So what is that, well, Matthew twelve thirty three? Right, right. So Should we look at that? Did you, yeah, you got your Bible? You, you, you um, read that one for us and I'll read the um, 1 Corinthians 14. Cool, one. okay, Matthew twelve thirty three. Let me Let me find it. <laughs> one second. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So Matthew twelve thirty three. Um Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So, a prophet must be carefully examined, particularly uh, from the fruit of the tree that is known. And we have this in uh, Paul's... Uh, letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, you and I have discussed this uh, just earlier, and this actually does talk about prophecy. Um, the, tra- the, the chapter is about prophecy and order in the church. But now, whether you are a continuist or a cessationist, we're gathering evidence here to point out that Montanism is something that is outside of Christian Orthodox belief, right? And so we're going to return to the scriptures to do that. Okay, so we've read about these other opinions and we've read about, you know, some of these uh, early church fathers and leaders from the day. But let's see what the Bible says about this. So, look, whether you are a continuist or a cessationist with regard to the spiritual gifts, uh, with regard to prophecy or any other things that you might want to put under those Let's just examine what the Bible does say, which clearly condemns the practices of the Montanists. And that's the point I wanted to make. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 33. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue... It should be by two or at the most three and Mm -hmm. each in turn and one must interpret. Okay, so you can't have like lots of people all babbling at once and it's sort of out of order and there's no interpretation of what they're talking about. Uh, That's quite clear. And the other thing that really comes across Mm. there is Mm. that it can be stopped. So in other words, no one's under any compulsion to no, just blurt out if... or to just do whatever whenever they feel like they've been taken over by the Spirit. So I think, I mean, the order, I think, in that is really key. So I think that, right. that is important. Right, because as we see here, it goes on to say, verse 28, exactly what you're pointing out here. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Oh, my goodness. The word judgment Ooh. is being used here. But, <laughs> but we're called to pass judgment on what That's others right. say and what others call prophecy, right? right? You're not, as you pointed out to me earlier, we were talking about testing the spirits, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we're not just to sit idly by and accept whatever anyone says. Someone comes to town, they're a famous prophet. You hear it all the time. You'll mm-hmm. see flyers getting around, you know, oh, famous prophet coming to town. You, yeah. You've got to roll up for this one and you're expected to turn up and whatever they say is gospel. Well, that's not right. what the Bible says. Right. The, the Bible makes it clear where to pass judgment and make judgments. And I would argue as compared to what is written in the scriptures as to what these people are saying, whether it be true or false. Okay, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now, here's the key point that you made earlier. In the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Hmm. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, 
as in all the churches of the saints. So if you're there and you say, well, look, I, I couldn't keep it in. I just blurted it out. Well, that's unscriptural because the, the spirit of the prophet is supposed to be subject to the prophet, right? right. Um, so we see here that, you know, ranting and raving in some sort of ecstatic trance, just babbling and carrying on that that doesn't edify or help anybody is definitely unscriptural. So yeah. it's quite easy to see that Montanists were and are to be considered, in my opinion, outside of general accepted Orthodox, 99% of Orthodox accepted Christianity. That's right. We probably should wind this up now, but I just wanted to point out one more thing before we do. Mm-hmm. I found, found it interesting to learn that um, in the 6th century, John of Ephesus um, at the orders of our f- friend Emperor Justinian, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. led an expedition to Papu, to Papu, how do you say it? To Papuza. Papuza. Papuza, mm-hmm. which Montanus had uh, renamed the New Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, so he led an expedition there to destroy the Montanus shrine, which was formed around the tombs of Montanus. Priscilla and Maximilla. So there you go. Uh, sixth century, the shrine was destroyed there. And that was in the time of Justinian, him? Yeah, our good old mate Justinian, who we have <laughs> discussions with. Yes, yes. Uh, we, our, our, um, going back to our emperor's discussion with Cliff in FQSH days, which I really enjoyed. And with that, Andy, I'll leave you to it and I'll say, Huru. From the guru. <laughs> from the guru. And there we go. I enjoyed doing that one. But to be totally honest, some of these people from the early church, like, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, I have to go back and find out who they were. But Cliff, you'd know a bit about the Montanists? Yeah, that, that was uh, the group that uh, pulled in Tertullian, uh, the great apologist. And right. uh, they were uh, kind of a proto-Pentecostal kind of thing, or they would uh, prophesy. There was Well, there was Montanus. And was it two daughters? Priscilla and Maximus. sisters. They were prophetesses. And that they yes. made all these predictions about the future and stuff, and that they would prophesy uh, while he, he was speaking. And uh, they were really uh, a very ascetic cult. Uh, they, they were very strict sexually. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I, I think they forbade marriage. Mm-hmm. So the the you know there the, there was a lot of places they overstepped their bounds on, but I understand that most of the prophecies were kind of generic and were kind of overlooked. And uh, that as far as them being considered outside the church, they were kind of borderline. Right, Cruzy, you've done a lot of research into this stuff. A lot of the prophecies that are spoken about in the church today are quite broad, aren't they? And could apply to many and any things, right? I think it's very similar. I think or there's also a link. Um, I think they called Montanus uh, a priest of Apollo or something, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Uh, well, well, they came out of Phrygia. That's uh, that's like the, the central and eastern part of uh, Anatolia, Turkey. And people thought that they had something to do with uh, one of the gods from that area. You know, there's no, no real proof. Uh, you mentioned Apollo, and it could have been something like Apollo. Uh, we really don't know a lot about the Phrygian language or, or their gods or anything. All we know is that they were uh, a really important people 
to the Anatolians because they contributed to the you know the ethnicities and stuff that were there, and they probably spoke a language similar to Albanian or something. And they uh, ended up uh, with all this gold because that area is uh, well, King Midas is uh, from around there. Were they rich? They were rich, weren't they, Cliff? Yeah, they had their hands on a lot of money. The the area was rich. The, so, to you, Cruzy, can you see the parallels there? You know, the money and the prophecies going hand in hand. Um. Yeah, I, I was speaking on on a different level though. Um, okay. I, I see a, I, I see a connection to the to the Apollo um, end time end time connection and and the end time church. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay, right. But, but that's okay. that's a whole show in itself. Um, but I think it's right. basically the same thing that we see today. You can't really distinguish it, can you? Today it's actually acceptable. Those days, I think a lot of people knew that it, that it was heresy. Yeah. We do have some famous prophetess in our southern regions here. Her following is growing now. She's apparently like 16 years old or something. That's um, I don't know who told me about it. Was it you, Goth? Um, about her? D. It was D. G'day, D. It, Greetings to D. It, yeah. But I actually downloaded a one book of prophecies, and it opens up in PDF, and on two different pages, you'll have, uh, you know, so-called words from the Lord. And in the first one, he says to her, or, he, you know, he's actually speaking first person, and he says, your nature won't change when you become a Christian. And on the next page, he says, I give you all new nature. Mm. You know, she really can't even realize that she's contradicted herself in the two so-called prophecies. And how many people have read the book and they haven't actually seen that? The Lord doesn't contradict himself. No, he doesn't. No, that's right. And the other thing too, Chrissy, I think Deep showed me and you a couple of young ladies in South Africa who are doing the same thing. But correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't she have a link for donations on her page, Cruzy? She does, yes. Yeah, I thought so. And again, it's money being linked to that prophecy topic again, which where we mm. started, we've come the full circle. We're talking about Montanus. And I knew that there was a money factor in that sect or cult because um, Cliffy correctly called it a cult. And full circle, here we are, South Africa. We do have a couple of prophetesses. But that one that we did look at, I'm sure on her page there is, click this link here to, for my bank account details. There's always a pattern, eh? If you really had to go and do the research, and I would love to see the research done on that, but I bet you about 70% of people that claim to be prophets or prophetesses are actually prophetesses. They are female. Yeah. And that's another link to the Montanist thing. It's two prophetesses. Yeah. And I don't think we find many biblical examples of that. I know that's a very debatable subject. But yeah, these days, the female pastors all over the show and females prophetesses, it's, it's uh, you know, if the man's not doing the job in the church, the woman will take it over and run the thing. Nothing against women, yeah? I don't know if you guys are getting what I'm saying, yeah? Should I pop out quickly and just get a cup of tea? I don't mind. I no, we're to. wondering if you're going well, to start prophesying any second now. <laughs> and we can make some, we can make some real moolah here. <laughs> don't go anywhere. It was interesting, and I mean, we don't want to regurgitate it because it was really quite long. But just to get that link between, was it the cult of Sybil? Gee, I can't remember so far back since mm. I actually listened to it. But the cult of Sybil, we. They did have these prophetesses. Montanus had come out of all of that, and so perhaps some of the influence was out of that too. Well, we recently were having a discussion on that Hebrew Roots page talking about uh, how often that movement is also being moved by women. Very often the women are the ones that suggest to get involved in it, or it's a married couple and uh, the two are working together. 
uh, which uh, you see that a lot too. But it seems like the women are, are really kind of the movers in, in that in some pretty big ways. I've noticed that there's a few of them that claim to be prophetesses, just kind of like uh, what we're talking about here at the Mont- Montanists, and that they, uh, you know, they'll, they'll wear the scarf and uh, the whole shebang. But they're pushing it. And, you know, you really have to wonder if there isn't that influence because of the women that are actually pushing it. It's just one of those things that, that came up uh, a couple days ago. There was a group that uh, I and uh, another page that I'm an admin on had dealt with. And we, we had several of them coming through there. They were more new agey, but they, they were incorporating elements of the uh, sacred namer kind of doctrines. Mm-hmm. And they were openly calling themselves Montanists. And they were accusing the rest of us as being Marcionite, which is kind of weird because I'm, I'm starting to hear that become more of a thing that's kind of getting bounded around by the Hebrew root people as a way of putting down uh, Pauline Christians because Marcion had... Uh, pretty much appropriated uh, all of Paul's writing, but he wasn't using any of the other. It was like all Paul and no no Peter. So he was one of the first ones that I heard say that, but he was definitely more of a New Age style. The women there were, were all prophetesses, and uh, they, they were also really active in the group. But yeah, there's a lot of these new groups that are coming out that uh, bear this mark, and uh, They seem to like the Montanists for some reason. They think of it as being kind of a badge of honor. A lot of the church these days, they're very um, experience-driven instead of Um, Mm doctrine-driven. And the important thing is always to remember is to test your experience by the Bible. Don't test the Bible by your experience. Because if you have that the wrong way around, then you are going to get all your doctrine wrong and you are going to fall into error. That's just a guarantee if if you're going to live by experiences. And... um, I'm afraid to say the um, the more charismatic movement, they thrive on experience. It's extremely experience-driven. They certainly use it to play on people's emotions, I think. And I don't know if that's just to get them kind of all riled up or, you know, feeling good so that they'll come back next week. Maybe that's all they've got. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's very um, manipulative, yeah. You know, and so it can be very manipulative, even though... Many of us don't even recognize it. It took me a long time to even see that, to be honest. So, mm. And just because something feels good doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. Right. That's, that's one of the other major mistakes I, th- I see people make in the church. They see gold dust floating. It's fantastic. So it must be from God. You know, things like that. It's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> At the end of the day, when all is shaken, what will stand? I think that's mm-hmm. what we've got to ask ourselves because really, what happens if gold dust isn't there one day? Mm. Are we now all of a sudden going to decide that, oh, the Holy Spirit didn't pitch up today? I mean, how much credibility are we putting in that stuff? And so mm. I think at the end of the day, this is the thing. When, when we are shaken, what is going to stand? Mm. I can't speak for other people, but I can say for myself, my best periods in life where my faith has been tested and, and grown the most was at the times that that was probably the worst times in my life. Right. Not the happiest gold dust falling angel feathers type of moments. So it's not about getting that kind of experience. God will use any situation to teach you something. So don't go after experience. I agree. <laughs> Gee, did you uh, fall off the line there? Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, Sorry, I was, guys. I was just wondering you when you said that you were in the Zambezi somewhere or other. I just wondered if you saw any crocodiles because if you were in the the real Zambezi, that's exactly what you would be seeing: crocodiles and probably some hippos. Oh <laughs> no, no, no! I'm 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 sitting atop Zambia Ridge. That's oh, just the name Zambia of this. Ridge. Uh, this cattle property that I'm on at the moment. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, no, no, I did lose connection because we are way, way out in the bush. I'm further out in the bush than my normal bush hut. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, sorry, seriously, sorry, guys. I did drop off a couple of times there. My microphone stopped working. I've just spent, the last, while you guys are talking, thankfully, um, I spent the last 10 minutes correcting. But um, I'm not <laughs> using my own gear well, and I'm not in my own studio. So You are down under, so we thought you might have fallen <laughs> off the earth. Since you guys, since you guys are all upside down, yeah. Hey, listen, we did beat South Africans at the first One Day International cricket recently, so I'm I'm claiming Herman a false prophet. Can 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 you just mention what the score is at the moment? Currently, <laughs> yeah, we're okay. Um, so today, from Perth, where a lot of South Africans mm-hmm. actually live, Perth, Western Australia, uh, the South Africans are getting their revenge and they're cutting Australia to pieces on the cricket pitch. <laughs> One thirty-eight four nine to be exact. Yeah, which is not very good, re- really. No, mm. but but we still have to bet, so anything can happen. Yes, uh, and we've we've just lost all the American listeners there because uh, yeah, we didn't speak about the ninth innings or the bottom of the seventh or anything like that or first base <laughs> and second base and. Uh, Cliffy, maybe we can just talk about the tennis or, I don't know, ice hockey or something. I don't watch tennis. (laughs) Tennis is good. (laughs) Only if you've got strawberries and cream. I I just know you never marry a tennis player. Go crazy. What did you say? I was just going to say a random fact about tennis is that you never marry a tennis player. Because to them, love means nothing. (laughs) Oh, tish. Okay, that was the end of that now. Well, we did we did need a, a cruisy joke to finish up on, and um, I, I suppose we probably might yeah. leave it there. For everyone's sake, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. And that's the show for this week, and thank you, and I'm out of here. Goodbye. I don't really know what just happened there. I, I was trying to do an outro. I was trying to do a cliff. Cliff did the big introduction. <laughs> I, was to, I was trying to do the big... You have to at least end it with a love you all. Bye. See you later, Cliff. <laughs> yeah. Terrible hosting. Terrible. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. 